This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic In the margin of a book. Most people have some baseline knowledge of what goes into building a home. But unbuilding a home is a completely different story. Colleen Hubbard's novel, Housebreaking, follows 20-something Dell, returning to the house she was raised in, only to take it apart piece by piece as she navigates both her future and her past. I recently spoke with Colleen Hubbard about the process of housebreaking, as well as writing in the thick of the pandemic. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Okay, so your novel is titled Housebreaking. And I understand that you were inspired by Shakespeare for this book, but not in the way one would expect. So I'm wondering, can you set up the book for us and explain the Shakespearean inspiration? So the book is about a young woman called Dell. She has moved to a city. She's living with her father's best friend. Both her parents died several years earlier, and she's really distanced herself from her family in her hometown. She's not answering their calls. And then something happens that makes her return back to her hometown and return back to the house that she inherited from her parents. Back home, she makes a very surprising decision, which is that she is going to dismantle her house and move it over a frozen pond over the course of one winter. And the Shakespeare connection is that I read a biography of Shakespeare that said he and his theater troupe dragged their entire building, their theater, over the frozen Thames one night. I think that they were trying to avoid paying taxes. And so they moved it from North London to South London, where there were no taxes. I loved that idea of moving a building over ice. I thought it was so cinematic and strange. And I just kept thinking how it could work on a domestic scale, meaning just a normal family house. And I thought, what would make somebody do something so crazy? And the only thing that I could come up with was a really, really deep-seated anger. And that's where this character came from. She's just fundamentally very angry about something that she sees as a fundamental unfairness that has happened in her life. And that makes her do something crazy. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So let's start with the process of unbuilding a house. In your author's note, you mentioned that you learned a lot from reading Brad Guy's book, Unbuilding. So I'm wondering, you know, what other research did you have to do? Did you have any like hands-on experience when you were writing it? There's absolutely no hands-on experience. I think (laughs) if I offered to do DIY in the house, my husband would die laughing. Um, It is not a skill set of mine, which is surprising because when I was growing up, I watched about a thousand episodes of this old house. You would think that I would know how to do anything basic around the house. And I absolutely cannot and will not. But uh, yeah, I spoke to Brad Guy. I looked at his book. I read his book. Um, I also interviewed him um, on the phone and we exchanged some emails. And basically I said, I have this crazy idea. A person dismantles a house. And I thought he was just going to laugh. He's an, Brad's an architect and he specializes in material reuse. And so he dismantles houses for the purposes of recycling. It's an ecological scheme where they just use everything that can be used repeatedly. And when I said, this is a crazy idea, he said, it's not so crazy and a person could totally do it. And actually his timeline for how long it would take was much shorter than I thought. I thought, oh, it's going to take, you know, this is however many months I had initially planned. And he said, I think actually a person could do it in six weeks, which is not how long it takes in the book. It takes a little bit longer than that. But this was wild to me, the idea that a person could actually do it. But taking a a hint from somebody who has actually done it himself, I guess that that is true. That is technically possible, although I myself would never do it and have never broken down a house, nor would I. (laughs) Okay, so can you talk to me about the, the metaphor of unbuilding a house? 
So the house is the place that her parents lived in. It's representative of her parents' marriage. Also, it is, it's a family house. It had belonged to her grandparents and her grandparents gave Dell's mother the house and Dell's uncle all of the land around the house. And so he used that land to become a very prosperous developer. And her mother didn't really make anything with what she was given. And so it becomes a metaphor meaningful to her really in what it means about her parents as individuals, about their marriage, um, and also about how the town and her family, extended family, saw her and her family her house isn't in very good shape. It has been neglected. It is falling apart. Um, they still have a coal stove and coal to heat the house. Um, at one point, her uncle makes a joke that does your house even have plumbing? Um, so it's not a house that's been well taken care of. It's not been modernized and updated. But for her, it just has that deep sense of meaning. It smells like her parents. Her parents' books and crossword puzzles are still in it. And so in dismantling the house, she's really forced to confront everything that she has lost and also her sense of grief. In dismantling the house and being around her parents' things, forces her to get to know her parents better as an adult because she's an adult now and when she left the house she was I think 17 years old and so she had a very different view on her parents relationship and lives. I want to talk about her parents a little bit because you know the term housebreaking can have so many meanings and it wasn't until I'd finished the book and sat with my thoughts for a little while that I contemplated the term housebreaking that it could be referring to like so many broken homes and families. So can we talk about her blood family Maybe more specifically, can you give us a description of her parents? Sure. So her mom is described as being a crack shot. Her parents meet when her father, who grew up in a city, um, is on this sort of funny country um, uh, jaunt with a friend and they go to a turkey shoot and her mother wins the turkey shoot. She um, has grown up and is sort of the pretty little darling of the family and really doesn't manage to make much of herself. She marries Del's father. Um, she has Del as her only child. She works in a sort of low-level job and she is depressed and angry and she drinks too much and ultimately dies in a car accident that we find out about pretty early in the book. Del's father is grew up in the city. Um, he is a great reader and learner. He has tons and tons of books around the house. Um, he's always picking up a new project and wanting to learn about a new thing like astronomy or the Civil War. He really loves Ken Burns documentaries. And also he has a secret that a lot of people aren't in on, which is that he has relationships with men. So there is a point in Dell's high school when a friend takes her to this bar as a kind of joke. They're going to pretend that they are 21 years old. They have fake IDs. They go in to have a drink and they don't know until they get there that it's a gay bar. And she goes into the back and there is a karaoke section of the bar and she sees her father singing to another man and everything becomes clear to her about her parents' relationship and why her father is always disappearing. So the family breaks up. Her father ends up moving to a city and sort of discovering himself and leaving her and her mother behind. So there is a lot of anger and grief there and also having to deal with her parents' choices. And she considers her parents very different at the age of 17 than at 24 when she is more aware of life and what options her parents had available at the time. And the book is set in the 1990s. So different way that we saw gay people and relationships and how we see them today. Now let's talk about her chosen family, because, you know, those who she chose, but also those who chose her, because, you know, despite her insistence on being a recluse, you know, quite a few people showed up for her in unexpected and often unwelcome ways. So do you think by nature, humans just want to help each other? Or what was it about Dell that prompted them to show up for her? 
So I think some people honestly feel sorry for her. I think she's a, a bit of a tricky character. She's quite difficult. She sees herself as an outsider, but also seeing herself as an outsider allows her to fail to take responsibility for herself in some areas of her life. There are some things that she does that if you thought she was a 16-year-old, you wouldn't be surprised about, but knowing that she's a 24-year-old, you do kind of feel surprised. Like she... Um, and the city finds out that the place that she's living that needs to come to an end, and she is unable to think about how to actually find an apartment and pay for an apartment by herself, which as a 24-year-old, she should know how to do, but she can't do it. And she can't do it because people have always sort of stepped in and helped her out. And she has used this vision of herself as this kid who had a really rough upbringing to sort of get that sympathy out of people, but also that sympathy allowed her to stop growing in certain ways that would have been good for her. And so throughout the book, she goes back to her hometown. She encounters some people who are similarly remember her from childhood and are willing to go the extra mile to help her out, to be honest with her when she really just needs someone to be honest with her. But also there are new people that she meets and that she's forced to think about what she has to offer to other people. So is she a good friend? Is she willing to go out of her way for other people? Um, what does she have to offer for other people? That's something that she has to think about that she should be thinking about as a 24-year-old, but for that, she hasn't really had to. Now I want to talk about family, you know, beyond the book. So can you talk to me about what family meant to you as you wrote the book? Because I understand that you wrote the bulk of this when you were on maternity leave. I did. So I had, yes, a new baby. My baby was three months old when I first heard about the coronavirus, as it was called then. And so quite a lot of the book was written during lockdown when we didn't have childcare, we couldn't see anybody. And so it was just me and my husband and our baby at home, figuring out really for ourselves what family was and what family meant for us as a group of three people for the first time. So I wrote the book um, most weeks, it was only three days a week, I would write during naps and when my husband was looking after the baby. But it was a tough time of having to, you know, not have those things that you think when you think of the ideal situation of having a new baby, it's, you know, friends dropping by, um, you know, maybe your parents coming to help out people bringing you food and being there for those really tough moments that, you know, you're going to have with a newborn. And my experience was really one of solitude because of the time that it was. And also living in the UK, I'm American. Most of my close friends still live in the United States. And so even in the best circumstances, it would have been, I think, a bit of a difficult time, but happening when it did in uh, the end of 2019, 2020, it was a really difficult time to write, but also there was a lot of time to write because there wasn't anything else to do. You know, one thing that you did with your book that I haven't noticed authors doing this at the end, you gave a reading list of what you read well, during the time I'm assuming you wrote this because it was during late night feedings and keeping your baby upright. And talk to me about the idea that went into making that list, but also sharing it. I love reading. I was a reader before I was a writer. Um, and I, I can't think of anything I enjoy more than talking to people about the books that I like reading. And so to me, it just felt very lucky to be able to say, here, here are some books that I love. Um, I was lucky that my publisher gave me the page at the, the end of my book to do that. So it, I felt very excited and grateful to be able to talk about some books, um, some of which I think uh, probably readers have heard about before, hopefully some that would be new to them, but that I felt really enthusiastic about and love talking about. Okay, so back to the book. I, I couldn't quite place the location in my mind as I read the novel. The city was mentioned, and at the time I was thinking, is this New York City? Is this San Francisco? I wasn't quite sure. But in your author's note, you mentioned that, quote, the book is a work of fiction shot through with vague memories. So 
you live in England, but you are a child of New England. Is the setting based on your childhood home? Um, the setting is based on New England in general, but certainly not where I grew up. I grew up in, I think it would be considered a small city or a big town, whereas the city that she's in, I would say I, I lived in Boston for a while. And I think if you um, have lived in Boston, you would recognize it as Boston. There are things that are recognizably Boston about it. But the area about her hometown is much more rural than where I grew up. And yet it's a place that I could have gone to. It's further north than where I lived because I needed it to be colder and more frozen for more of the winter. I grew up in Southern Connecticut and Middletown, Connecticut. But the area where she grew up is a farming area outside of a former sort of industrial community mill town where there is no industry anymore. And so there are no jobs for people. It is, I think, the sort of hollowed out New England that you would recognize if you travel through areas of Western Massachusetts or Southern Vermont or New Hampshire, where there used to be quite a bit of industry, quite a lot of jobs, and there just aren't anymore. And so they are mostly older people, mostly small towns where young people kind of have to leave because there's no work for them there. So the book is set in the late 90s, as you mentioned, and homosexuality and the AIDS epidemic played a role in that time frame and in your book. Why was it important to include that for you? So I knew one of the fundamental relationships of the book was going to be between Dell and Tim. So Dell is 24, as I mentioned. Um, Tim is her father's best friend who takes her in and she lives with him for several years before she has to leave his apartment. But he's in his mid fifties. I knew that this relationship was going to be very important. And, and there's basically no way to write about a, a book with a, a very important, prominent gay character in the nineties without talking about AIDS uh, because it was so important. I lived in San Francisco for about 10 years. I have many, many, many gay men who are close friends and many of them moved to San Francisco in the 80s and 90s and had that experience of living through the height of the AIDS epidemic and talking about what that meant for them, what that meant for how they saw themselves, what it was like to watch hundreds of your friends die. So that was something that I knew a bit about just personal relationships and talking to people. And I know people who have HIV and people who have AIDS, but I needed also to do quite a bit of reading. So I have a friend, Ryan Donovan, who is a scholar of theater, but he taught a course where part of the course was about AIDS and theater. And so he sent me his syllabus and I read and it's mentioned in my book um, for anybody who wants to read more, but quite a lot of writing that was contemporaneous, meaning writing that happened at the time about how people saw AIDS and homosexuality in the 90s, but also lots of books that were looking back and talking about how people saw AIDS and the AIDS crisis and how it affected people. So on Friday, your essay, Sometimes It's Good to Bring Our Worst Selves to Work, was published um, in Electric Lit. And there are just a couple of things I would like to talk to you about from the article. You talked about comparisons between yourself and your protagonist, Dell, and you wrote, quote, Adela isn't a stand-in for me. She's more of a loner, more stubborn, and less conventional. Her family situation is nothing like mine, but the themes of my book, the black hole at the center of her adolescence, and the social failure that spins out from it are subjects that she and I could talk about if we met for coffee, after which she'd pick my pocket while I paid the bill. So talk to me about comparisons that you might have to Dell, but then also where she surprised you as a character. Yeah, so I would say I had a period of time when I was young when we were homeless, and it was for me between fifth and sixth grade. And so without getting too much into the specifics of it, I had this period of feeling really like I was on the fringes of society, really feeling like we were avoiding being seen by other people in our community because we didn't want them to judge us and see our circumstances and think that we were a certain sort of failure. And so 
as a child, keeping a lot of things hidden. So not telling any of my friends about what was happening in my life or how difficult things were. For Dell, her circumstances are very different. My, my parents are nothing like hers. And I also have two siblings and quite a large extended family, whereas she has quite a small family. But I could connect with her on that sense of feeling judged and feeling resentful. I would say, though, I am married. I have two small children. I have a book coming out. My life is a success story in many ways in which I think Dell's life may be a success story after this book ends. But I don't think it would look like my life looks. I think that her life will always look quite different than mine. And I think that she would find me frankly, a little bit boring. Um, And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being a little bit boring, but I could connect with her on that sense of resentment, that sense of feeling judged, that sense of feeling like not quite the right person, not quite the right relatives, not the people who are being boosted up as, um, you know, the, the most successful parts of the family. You know, you also mentioned having jobs that people look down upon, jobs that were, quote, beneath the standards of respectable work. So did that help shape Dell as a character? Because she certainly had a series of, I would call them undesirable jobs. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I've worked lots and lots of hourly wage jobs. I've worked in a grocery store. I worked in a bakery. I've also worked quite corporate jobs. So I, my last job was working in a hospital. But yes, I, I've it's interesting to see how people react to your job and what they think of as being a respectable, honorable, great job and what they think of as being not an acceptable job. And so in the essay you're talking about, I write about how for a while after I got out of college, I worked in a bakery um, that was near a college campus and often would just be chatting about books with people who were professors at the campus and they would just straight up tell me, oh, like you seem like a smart enough person. Why are you working here? And I thought that that was such a weird, rude comment. Um, There are a lot of reasons why I had that job. I really liked it. You know, it wasn't a particularly well-paid job, but it was a job working with really nice people doing something that I cared about. Whereas when I got the radio copywriting job, the job title sounded much more impressive, but actually the work that I was doing wasn't very impressive. It was a radio program that had a shock shock in the morning. And so a lot of the ads were for strip clubs or for sex toy shops. And I didn't think there was anything particularly um, uh, impressive about that, but people found the job more impressive than, yes, I work at a bakery and I behind the counter and I sell bread. So Housebreaking is your debut novel. In that same Electric Lit article, you said you were thankful that you weren't published in your 20s because you would have been insufferable. Can you talk to me about what the publishing process has been like for you as an American who lives in Britain, as someone who wasn't published in her 20s, as a novelist with U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and U.K. releases of her debut? Talk to me about that. So I... I would say the standard process is you write your novel. If you're writing fiction, you complete it and you send, try to find an agent by sending the manuscript for people to read. It's quite, it's a different process for nonfiction. So I won't get into that, but for a novel, you complete the novel and then you reach out to agents and you say, does anybody want to represent me? And so an agent came back and said, yes, I'd like to represent you. I got a deal with an imprint of Penguin. And from there, it's just a very strange process. Very difficult to get published right now. There is a collapse that has happened at the center of the publishing industry with a lot of editors quitting, a lot of people in marketing publicity quitting because the jobs aren't particularly well paid. And I think the traditional view of publishing was that it was a job for people who are already pretty well off living in New York City who didn't necessarily need their publishing salaries in order to pay their bills. And now it is much more of a diverse workforce, but they need their salaries 
to pay their bills and they can't because it doesn't pay very well and there aren't a lot of opportunities to advance. And so because of that, fewer, I would guess, fewer books are being taken on. It's harder to find an agent. It's harder to get your book bought. So in that sense, I feel very, very lucky to have a book coming out at all. It's something that I worked for such a long time and for so hard and still it's not something that I can take for granted. I have many friends who are writers who are more talented, I would say, more talented than I am, who have not yet found an agent or who have not found a contract yet. But then you move to this new stage where, okay, you've got your book coming out and social media has become such a big part of it. And you see everybody else's stuff. You see how their books are being packaged, or you see, um, you know, the publicity and marketing that they have behind their book. And I think comparison is natural. And you look at those things and you think, well, I don't have that. Or you think, oh, well, you know, my situation is a little bit better than this person's. But I think mostly the human condition is to look at the people who are just kind of one step up from where you are and say, oh, I wish I had that rather than looking at the many, many people who are worse off than you are and saying, well, actually, I'm pretty lucky where I am. For me, I just feel like it's extraordinary that I got to publish a book. I don't think when I think of myself age nine or 10, what my life looks like now, it's just beyond belief. It's bizarre. I don't know. I couldn't tell you the chain of events that got me here. I mean, I could actually tell you the chain of events, but it doesn't make any sense. So I just feel really profoundly lucky. Are you working on anything now that you want to talk about? Yes, I'm working on something. No, that I want to talk about. <laughs> That's why I always add that in there, because there are two types of people. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, well, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on your book. And um, I can't wait to talk to you about the next one, which shall remain unsaid. <laughs> Thank you so much, Beth. It was so nice talking to you. That was Colleen Hubbard, author of the book Housebreaking, which was published by Berkeley. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Stadzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our intern is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <laughs>